If you have your Bible, open to 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel. I just came back from London a little while back. They would have said 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 15. This morning we're going to pick up um, where Greg left off last week. And we'll be covering a section of 2 Samuel that isn't the lightest or most encouraging read. If you were able to read 15 to 20 ahead of time, like I encourage you to do, you'll know what I'm talking about. These chapters are going to relate to us just one trouble and heartache after another in the life of David. But these chapters, if they do anything, just to preview what we're going to see, they, they're going to teach us about the consequences of sin. Uh, they're going to teach us about the grace of God toward repentant sinners because of God's gracious promises made to repentant sinners. And it also gives us glimpses of the gospel. But, and this is something, that's something we need to keep in mind constantly as we're studying the Old Testament. When I mentioned gives us glimpses of the gospel. Um, name, we need to keep in mind, namely, what Jesus and the, and the apostles told us about how we ought to look at the Old Testament. And this is ground we've covered a lot of times before. But think about what Paul said, for example, in Galatians 3 when he said, Using his words, he said that the gospel was preached beforehand in the Old Testament. That's, that's, that's pretty clear. The gospel was preached beforehand in the words of the Old Testament. Think about what Jesus said twice after his resurrection. Luke 24, road to Emmaus, two men. Twice he told them that all of the Old Testament, the way he said it was Psalms, prophets, writings. That's, every, that's code for all of it is about him, testifies to him, which means we don't ever need to lose sight of Christ when, even when we're, and of his gospel, even when we're studying the Old Testament. If we, if we do, if we come away with the, from the Old Testament with just sort of moral stories, Jesus and the apostles are saying we've kind of missed the main point of it. Um, and so every time we come to the Old Testament, and I'll admit sometimes it's easier to do than other times, but whatever passage you're in the Old Testament, you, you kind of you always need to be asking yourself, where do I see Christ in this? Is there anything here that foreshadows Christ and his gospel to me? Is there anything that here that's pointing me forward to him? And I hope we can see some of that in our chapters for this morning. Again, per usual, we have a lot of ground to cover. And I can't say we're going to cover all of it equally. But I do uh, hope to uh, address what the Lord would have us to address. And if you've read it ahead of time, you, you already have some familiarity with it. Um, to set the stage for what we're going to see, I do want to read just a little portion of, of 2 Samuel 15 um, to begin. So if, you've read, if you found that chapter, I want us to read verses 1 through 12 just to, to uh, whet our appetite for what we're about to see. And then after that, we'll pray, and I'll, I'll lay out what I would like us to take away from chapters 15 to 20. So 2 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel uh, 15, 1 to 12. Beginning in verse 1, after this, Absalom, now that's David's son, his third son. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would Call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, 
your servant is of such and such a tribe. And Israel, Absalom, would say to him, See, your, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or, or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to, him, to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow when I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom went, to, went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, they, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. All right, let's pray. Lord, this passage and, and all, that, all others that we're going to consider, it, it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, and it is our desire um, to meet with you in it. And so, Lord, would you please give us minds to understand uh, what you have for us in these pages. Help us to think quickly and clearly. And Lord, would you give us um, hearts then to embrace the truth that you set before us in these pages? Would you give us um, wills to obey what it is that you uh, call us to do? Lord, would you, um, would you give us help by the Spirit to, to study your Word today? Would you give me the help that I need to teach? Give us all uh, ears to hear the Spirit speaking in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, hopefully you can tell from those few verses you can, that things are sort of getting off on the wrong foot for David. I mean, there, it's, it's, it, that, that, that kind of flavor that we just read, it carries all through the five chapters or 15 to 20 that we have this morning. But there, there's a reason for it. Um, and so before we get into the main points of our passage this morning, I do want to do a little review and recall some backdrop um, from the chapters that Greg covered last week that I think are necessary to remember before we uh, come here, and, and, and it's necessary to make sense of all that's going on here. And then once we, get, once we do that and we get to the meat of our passage, there are three things that I would like us to consider. If you're taking notes, I'll tell you what those are. They're not neatly divided up among chapters. They will be bouncing around a little bit. But here they are. Here's the three main points once we get to our main passage. First, I want to think about David's sin. David's sin. And this, this, this will be the longest point of the three because there's just a lot going on here. Uh, and much of what we, we're going to read is attributable as consequences of David's sins and shortcomings. So we need, to, we need to take careful account of that. First point is David's sin. Second, we'll think about David's repentance. You, you do have to uh, look a little carefully to see it because so much of our passage is taken up with David's sins and its consequences 
but sprinkled throughout are a couple of signs of David's repentance, and we need to think about that. And then finally, thirdly, we'll think about David's hope. And this is where we're going to step back and, and try to see uh, where are a, a couple of ways, where are a couple of places that, that we can see these chapters foreshadow Christ and point us to the gospel uh, and keep us marveling and trusting in uh, the true King and Savior who came as promised and pictured. That said, let's dive in and, and first get a little context uh, from earlier chapters uh, that ha- give us some necessary background to what we're going to find in chapters 15 to 20 and make sense out of it. So there's a, there's a few things we need to keep in mind. We're not going to take up too much time here, but long enough to set the stage thoroughly. So um, the first thing we need to keep in mind as we come into chapters 15 to 20 um, is this. It is what we learned in chapter 7, okay? Um, 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, uh, you, it just is, because that is where is set forth for us the covenant that God made with David. Second Samuel 7 is the, is the chapter where we have the Davidic covenant, and, it, and think about what God told him. Think about the, the gracious covenant promises that God made to David in Second Samuel 7. For example, in, in chapter 7, verse 9, God promised to make for David a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And in verse 11, he promised David to give him rest from all his enemies. And in verse 13, to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Those are irrevocable promises uh, that he made in 2 Samuel 7. So in other words, David's kingship and dynasty ain't going nowhere. I mean, it it, it may appear at times, it's going to appear at times, in our passages today, I mean, you, we just read Absalom makes some pretty quick headway to taking, some throne, taking the throne. It's going to look like it's in, in, it's in peril uh, in our chapters today. You remember later in Israel's history when Israel and Judah actually go into exile. And, the, and there, there is no king on the throne. You might think that that promise was, it, 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 it faltered. But when you come to Matthew chapter 1, and the genealogies that you're prone to skip over, you realize that God was still keeping score, He was still keeping records, and He was still keeping His promises to send that, that greater son of David as, a, as the forever king, who is Jesus Christ. But backing up to 2 Samuel, we just read, and what you're reading in, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, is the beginnings of a coup attempt by David's third son, Absalom. And at times, it looks like it has a real chance of success. But if you keep 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant that God made with David, if you keep that in mind, you know how that's going to end even before it begins. The second thing you need to keep in mind that is sort of casting a pall over chapters 15 to 20, uh, which you might guess is the main event of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, what was the big event that happened in Chapter 11, David's adultery with Bathsheba um, and the subsequent murder of her husband. Kind of a big deal. Um, and it's for, it is for that sin that happened in 2 Samuel 11 that the text, and I need you to turn to this one, the text that is really guiding everything we're going to see today in our main text is chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. So take a second, hold your place in chapter 15, turn back to chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. And after David commits adultery with Bathsheba and 
arranges for the murder of her husband. The prophet Nathan comes to him, and this is the word of the Lord that he brings to David in verses 10 through 12. You might note these verses and, 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 and underline them or something. But he says, Now therefore, he's saying this to David, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That word in chapter 12 begins to come to pass immediately after that. We'll see a couple of examples of that. And it doesn't cease to come to pass in our chapters 15 to 20 today. The one way that it began immediately in the chapters that Greg had last week, the way that it immediately came to pass um, that sets the stage for what we see today is uh, really two events. First was the rape by David's first son, Amnon, of his daughter, of Amnon's sister, Tamar, or his half-sister, Tamar. That occurred in chapter 13, about which David essentially did nothing. He didn't do anything. Look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. After Amnon had raped Tamar, Absalom, who would have been Tamar's uh, full sister, uh, half-brother of Amnon, Absalom comes to, to Tamar. And in verse 20, notice what he asks. It says, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He doesn't say when he sees broken and and, 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 and just broken Tamar. He doesn't say, what happened? He says, has Amnon been with you? He goes straight to Amnon, which tells you what? Amnon had a reputation. Amnon had probably not kept to himself the wicked desires that he had. Uh, so much so that Absalom knew. He knew it was Amnon. If Absalom knew that Amnon had this reputation. Who else should have had an idea that Amnon had this reputation? His daddy, David. But when David does find out what happened, what does it say? Look at verse 21. When, Dave, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry and and nothing. David doesn't do anything. He's just angry about it. In, this, in that case, David is like, do you remember Eli from 1 Samuel early on? He's like Eli, who had two wicked and worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and he knew their reputation, he knew what they were doing, and he disproved of it, but did nothing about it. This is David being the same way. And we're told that Absalom didn't respond like David did. Verse 22 of chapter 13 says, Well, Absalom 
hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Which leads to Absalom actually doing something about it. He plots for two years, two years, to murder Amnon, which he does in chapter 14, which is another pivotal event that sets the stage for our chapters today. In chapter 14, he murders his half-brother Amnon. Now, what does David do when he finds out about that? Well, you kind of get a hint of what what he, what he does, because Absalom, after he murdered Amnon, has to flee Jerusalem. He flees Jerusalem. And eventually, through a certain uh, a set of circumstances, David allowed Absalom to return to Jerusalem. But when Absalom returns, what does David say to uh, uh, Absalom, or says, says to tell Absalom? In chapter 14, verse 24, the king said, let him, let us, let Absalom dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And verse 28 says it went on like that for two years. Well, naturally, Absalom probably didn't want... I mean, a lot had happened. His sister had been raped. He had murdered his brother who did it. He had fled to another town. He had come back to Jerusalem but couldn't even see his dad for two years. He probably at least wanted to have a conversation. Can we just kind of clear this up, dad? <laughs> right? Uh, so he sends word. He's trying to get word to David. Can we just at least sit down? And, here, and, and he says, well, I can't go straight to my dad, so I'm going to try to go through my dad's military commander, Joab. So he sends word to Joab. No reply. So he sends word again to Joab again. No reply. Well, naturally, when you, when you get two emails ignored, what do you do? You set their field on fire. So that's what, that's what Absalom did. He sets Joab's field on fire, and Joab responds to that one. Um, <laughs> the fact that Joab just straight ignored Absalom twice. It, it, it doesn't tell us, but you get the feeling that David, his boss, was telling him not to reply, to ignore it. But David eventually grants the meeting, and look at verse 33, the last verse of chapter 14. David granted the meeting, and it says, Absalom came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. But man, that had to have been an awkward meeting. Like, during, during all of that time, years had passed. Years had passed. During all of that time, David's sin of omission, of doing nothing when his daughter Tamar had been raped by his oldest son, Amnon, and, and the coldness in the way that he treated Absalom, combined with the promise that we read from chapter 12 that the sword would never leave his house and bad stuff's going to come. All of that forms the backdrop for what we walk into when we come to chapter 15. So with that, 
Let's dive in and continue thinking about David's sin, which we've already been considering from the previous chapters, but we're certainly going to see more of the consequences of that sin in these chapters. Um, so think we're not about David's sin. So what we find in chapters 15 to 20 are not necessarily more and more egregious acts of sin, but really more and more tragic consequences of the sins that he had done, which were major. Um, and we see it right away as David's now somewhat estranged son Absalom begins to stage a coup against dear old dad. Now look at verse 1. We read that. He got himself a chariot and, and horses and 50 men to run before him. That might get noticed in Jerusalem. And in verse 2, he would stand on a main road and, and, and Absalom would hear people's disputes and look at what he would tell people in verse 3. He would sort of sow doubts about David saying, well, the king hasn't appointed anybody to hear your case. And in verse 4, he would say, oh, that I were, oh, that I were judge in the land. I would give you justice, oh, man. And in verse 5, he is shaking hands and kissing babies. He is campaigning hard. He's campaigning hard. And verse 6 tells us plainly, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Well, things were going exactly as he had hoped at this point, so he decides to take the coup to stage two. Verse 7 said, Absalom went on like this for four years. He's kissing babies for four years. And, and so he's being very patient about the whole thing and letting people grow deeper and deeper in love with him. But after four years, verses 7 and 8 tell us that Absalom actually went to his dad and said and asked David if he could go to Hebron and pay a vow that he had made to the Lord. If David thought that that was a funny request, or at least a somewhat suspicious one, you've been prancing around Jerusalem in a chariot with 50 soldiers, well, the text doesn't say if he thought it so, but why might it have been suspicious? Because where was David anointed and made king? In Hebron. In Hebron. So it's kind of a significant place. But verse 9, David gives his permission without protest. And as you expect, when Absalom went, he had arranged for people to listen for the trumpet blast. And when they hear it, proclaim, Absalom is now king. And to add insult to injury, verse 12. We ended with this verse, and it might not have meant much to you, but it says that Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite. But notice the, the other appellation that's given to him. Who was Ahithophel? It says David's counselor. He sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. David's counselor is now defecting from David to go to Absalom. That was not a slight thing. Not a slight thing at all. We, we learn, you can flip and just look at it, but in chapter 16, verse 23, the last verse of chapter 16, it says, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and Absalom. And going back to chapter 15, losing Ahithophel was a big deal. Um, that one cut deep. There's no way to prove it. There's no way to prove it. 
But it's highly likely that in, um, when, when, when you read the Psalms, that Ahithophel is in David's mind when, for example, he said in Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You might recognize that verse as one that is quoted about Judas in the New Testament. Ahithophel's the Judas of the Old Testament. Yeah? But also, Psalm 55, 12 to 14, David wrote, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. What would make Ahithophel do that to David? Why would he abandon David to work for his son who was trying to overthrow him? Again, can't prove this is why, but Ahithophel wasn't just anybody. You could piece together a couple of pieces of information from the end of 2 Samuel and the middle of 2 Samuel, and you realize Ahithophel is Bathsheba's granddaddy. Um, you think that might have lingered just a little while with Ahithophel, you know, giving him motive to hurt David in response if the time was given to him? So here we have both Absalom and Ahithophel right off the bat. You have Absalom and Ahithophel rising up against David in heartbreaking opposition, and both are consequences of David's sin. Both are, Ahithophel is because of David's sin of commission with Bathsheba, his granddaughter, and Absalom because of David's sin of omission with Amnon, who raped his sister, which is a lesson to be learned for us about the seriousness of sin. Our sins can have far-reaching consequences. Sins aren't private. Um, and, and a lot of those consequences of our high-handed sins, not only do they come, but they're, 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 they're far worse than you would anticipate. And they're gut-wrenching. Um, and they're, they're, many times they're, they're consequences that you would never foresee or anticipate. Which, what is this? It's just a, it's a needed warning and a word of caution to us to walk in holiness, to walk in integrity, to ask the Lord's help. Not, don't let me walk in high-handed sin. Right? Because the consequences, as we see here, could be bitter. Well, verse 12 of chapter 15 says, The conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So much so that David has to flee Jerusalem. The king... The rightful king has to go into exile. <clears throat> and it's telling how much support that Absalom had in Israel when it tells us who fled with David. When it, so if you look at verse 18, it says, The people who fled with David were the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites. Who are they? foreigners. Those are foreigners whom David had conquered. They're basically Philistine people. Foreigners. Why, why then? Because Israel had mostly all gone to Absalom. 
He didn't have a whole lot of Israelites fleeing with him. He had foreigners fleeing with him. Interestingly, there's a guy with a great name in chapter 15, verse 19, Ittai the Gittite. I love that. Ittai the Gittite. He was a Philistine. What you find him doing in, uh, in verses 19, 20, and 21 is you find Ittai the Gittite, the Philistine, expressing unwavering loyalty to David, which just highlights the tragedy of his own flesh and blood committing treason against him, a mess largely of his own sinful making. Well, when you come to chapter 16, beginning around verse 5, David runs into a man named Shimei, who was a relative of Saul, and he's just openly, that begins around verse 5, he's just openly cursing David. He's throwing dirt on David. He's throwing rocks at David. His men are like, can we just cut off his head? And, and David's like, don't do that. More on that in a minute. But if you read the text, which we don't have, we don't have uh, time to do, you, you realize that Shimei, Saul's relative, who's throwing rocks and dirt at David, the things that Shimei is accusing David of are not true. They're not true. He thinks David was bloodthirsty and killed people to get the throne. And you remember how many times David said, I'm not going to lay a hand on God's anointed? He's just, he's, he believes lies about David. And is, and is cursing him for those lies. But that also highlights just how important it is not to add to our own sorrows because of our own high-handed sins. As Jesus said, each day has enough trouble of its own. Life is just hard for unjust reasons sometimes. So spare yourself walking in high-handed sin that's going to bring even more tragic consequences on yourself. Well, Absalom, David's, David's fled, and Absalom is now in Jerusalem having taken the throne. And listen to, the, to Ahithophel's uh, first piece of advice for him. In chapter 16, verses 20 to 22, Ahithophel's counsel to David is, hey, go, uh, counsel to Absalom is, go to David's palace and sleep with David's concubines so that you will become a stench to David and it will be a very public repudiation of David's kingship. So it says in chapter 16, verse 20 to 22, that they put a tent up on the roof of the king's house for Absalom to go in there and sleep with all of David's concubines. Two things about that. That's an infamous rooftop. <laughs> that, is the, that is the rooftop where David planned his adultery with Bathsheba. Um, and now that's going on in the rooftop, so don't miss the tragic irony. And again, David's sin is coming back on him. But, but second, this is exactly what was promised by God through Nathan the prophet. Remember the end of that, remember that passage, chapter 12, verses 10 through 12? Remember what we read in that, where God said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. 
For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Chapter 16, verse 22 says, Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. It's fulfilling the prophecy given by Nathan the prophet after David's sin with Bathsheba. I mean, this is just woe after woe after woe. But this passage doesn't leave us entirely without hope because if you remember, remember God's covenant promise from 2 Samuel 7, you, you expect him to work good on David's behalf and not to abandon David because he had promised not to. And you see that come to pass in big and small ways. One small way in chapter um, 16 17 is of a, a provision of a guy named Hushai the Archite. Hushai the Archite. And it says that Hushai the Archite just happened, just happened to meet up with David. And David, I'm summarizing, David sent him to be his spy. He said, Don't, don't hang out with me. I want you to go back to Absalom and pretend to be his servant and you work your way in there and try to be one of his counselors along with Ahithophel, right? Um, and I'm, 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 I'm skipping over some things, but if you read the story, um, David has fled, and Absalom wants counsel from his counselors. He says, what should we do? Ahithophel goes first, and uh, Ahithophel gives... Great military advice. It's not right because you're still attacking God's covenant king. That's not good. But if you're just thinking strategic, it's impeccable. Ahithophel says, surprise attack. I'll pick the men. I'll go with the men. We'll do it at night. It's like minimal risk, maximum injury, right? If, if he had taken Ahithophel's advice, things would have gone very differently. But for reasons that don't make any sense, after he hears Ahithophel's uh, counsel, Absalom says, well, let me hear what Hushai has to say. And Hushai gives his own uh, sneaky advice. But taking, and he, and he ended up taking Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's. Doesn't make any sense. Because taking Hushai's advice allowed David to escape. And it put Absalom in a precarious situation as a result. But what does the text say? Why did Absalom reject Ahithophel's really good military advice for Hushai's advice that actually put him in trouble? Chapter 17, verse 14 tells us why. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That's why. It doesn't make any earthly sense why he went with the advice of Hushai over Ahithophel. It made sense to God. God had made a covenant promise to David and nothing was going to succeed against it. Well, Ahithophel ends up committing suicide because his counsel was not heeded. And when David's army counterattacked against Absalom, Absalom ended up being killed in battle by David's military commander, Joab, which was against David's, that's chapter 18, which was against David's wishes. It put an end to the coup. Absalom did die 
in an interesting way. Uh, the man had some hair. Uh, it, it said in chapter 14 he used to cut his hair once a year, and then he would weigh his hair. And it's got it in these, like, all these Old, old Testament measures. But if you convert it, the man cut off five pounds of hair every year. I mean, locks of love. I mean, well, he was in, in the battle. He was riding his, uh, his donkey, and, and, and his hair got caught in the tree, and the donkey kept going. And so he's just hanging there by his hair in the tree. Um, and, and somebody comes to Joab and says, Absalom's hanging right over there. Uh, and Joab spears him, and his men finish off the deed. Um, it was against David's wishes, but it put an end into the coup. You know, let's learn a lesson from Absalom. His own pride brought him down. And in chapter 18, verse 18, we learn that Absalom, during that time, had set up for himself a pillar, a monument. He said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. This, that was Absalom trying to make a name for himself. Absalom was like a little modern-day Tower of Babel. And it didn't, it didn't come to pass. And they gave him a cursed burial. They, they buried him and threw a, threw a pile of stones over him. And if you read of other people who were... Buried with a pile of stones over them. It's not really a good list of guys. A cursed burial. But David grieved and grieved the death of Absalom. And I have to believe that it wasn't purely for his love for Absalom that he grieved and wept and grieved and wept. Because they had hardly spoken in like five years. And, and I think it was really more because this was just another instance and a bitter reminder of the dark depth of David's own sins and consequences. Why do I think this? Because this passage isn't only about bearing testimony to David's sins, but also to his repentance, I think. Let's look at that for just a second. I just want to point out a couple of instances that I believe show that David was repentant deep down. And we see it early on in chapter 15. If you go back to chapter 15, when David first, when the conspiracy grew strong and the people kept, and Absalom kept increasing, when David has to flee Jerusalem and go into exile, we read in those, uh, in those from like 13 onward, verse 13 onward, that among the things that happened at that time, Zadok, the priest, and the Levites, they try to bring the Ark of the Covenant with David as he goes. Well, David isn't going to make the mistake of 1 Samuel chapter 4. You remember how that went with the Philistines. So he tells them to take it back. As one commentator, I think it was Ralph Davis, said, David knew that God's favor was more important than God's furniture, Right? And so David says in 15, verse 25, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. 
and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. That is David just absolutely not trying to justify himself before God. He trusted in God's justice. Whatever seems good to God is right. And he trusted in his mercy, though, knowing that he knew what he deserved, but he, he, he was trusting that God had already made gracious promises to him. And so he was deeply repentant. And the other example is in chapter 16, when uh, crazy nephew Shimei of Saul is cursing David and throwing stones and rocks at him. And you remember David's men were like, can we just cut off his head? Um, David answers them in verse 12 of chapter 16. He says, basically, don't, don't, don't cut off his head. But he says, and by the way, after it was all over, Shimei is one of the first ones to come back and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Anyway, uh, chapter 16, verse 12, this is what David says. Uh, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So he's trusting and hoping in God's mercy. There's an interesting translation question in that verse too. Um, it says, the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. But there is, there is uh, it, it could be translated very possibly as, it may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity. My iniquity. Instead of the wrong done to me, my iniquity. And again, if that's right, it's David is just very mindful of his sins and the bitter consequences brought on him. He's humble before the Lord. He's repentant. He's pleading for mercy, having no argument to justify himself. And before we move on to the final point, it just bears being clear that just because we're repentant about our sins and just because the Lord forgives repentant sinners doesn't mean that the earthly consequences of our sinful choices just disappear, right? David was repentant. God was merciful. God was gracious. God helped him in some ways, but David still had to walk a bitter road because he chose his own way. Well, we don't have time to look at the final chapters. I'm so sorry, but uh, what you'll find in those chapters, is there, even after the coup is over, there's dispute among Israel and Judah about bringing David back to the throne. There's another rebellion he has to put down. That guy's head does get cut off. Um, but the terrible consequences just keep coming. But he found forgiveness with the Lord. And uh, Yeah, I need to say a quick word finally about David's hope. I need, to, I need to point somewhere and see how does this passage point us forward to Christ and to his gospel. Um, There are several ways that it does this. I want to point out a couple. One, um, we've already noted at least one way um, in which David himself is a type of Christ. And you know he's just a type because as sinful as he was, you know he ain't the real one, right? But he is a type of Christ. And we've already, uh, we've already pointed out how he was betrayed by Ahithophel in words that were then later quoted of Judas who betrayed Christ. Right? That's one way that he pictures Christ. But there's one more scene that I just want to note before we close. And it's at the end of chapter 15. When David flees Jerusalem at the, at the height of Absalom's coup, 
We're told in verse 30 that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. What's he weeping for? Again, I think he's weeping for his own sins and the, the tragic, bitter pill that his own sins brought him. I just think that is foreshadowing another day when a greater son of David, Christ himself, would climb that same Mount of Olives. And you can read in Luke chapter 19 how he also wept on the Mount of Olives, but not for his own sins, but over the sins for which he would soon atone through his own sacrificial death and sacrifice. Well, David found mercy just like we do through the gracious promise of God founded in the life, death, and resurrection of the greater son of David, who suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of many who would seek refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this text. And um, I, I pray that, um, yeah, th- this, this passage does show us uh, David's repentance. It points us forward to the, the Christ who can forgive us of our sins, but it spends a whole lot of time on David's sins and shortcomings and the, and the terrible consequences that it, that it wreaked in his life. And I pray that that would be, again, it, that, if that's where you spent most of your focus in this passage, Lord, may it be the, the thing that rings most loudly in our own hearts and minds that uh, we're, we are all sinners. And uh, I pray that we would uh, daily and moment by moment ask for your grace and help not to walk in high, high-handed sins like David did, not just so that we can avoid the consequences, but we, we, can, we can honor your great name. Uh, and also uh, for the consequences, that we wouldn't have to suffer the, the, we, because we didn't walk in high-handed, we wouldn't incur consequences in our own life that would bear poor testimony um, to your great name. So Lord, help us to walk in holiness and thank you for this picture of the gospel that you have given to us in this passage for repentant sinners. I thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.